Does Starbucks have surge pricing? And middlemen, what's up with that? I'm the knower of important things, and I'm here to tell you that once you realize that the answer is transaction costs, then everything gets clear. Welcome to episode four of Tidy C. I thought they'd talk about a system where there were no transaction costs, but it's an imaginary system. There always are transaction costs. When it is costly to transact, institutions matter, and it is costly to transact. Last week's letter asked, does Starbucks have surge pricing? Well, let's think about that. You're used to surge pricing, Uber, hotels and airlines, of course, but also electric utility. There's a peak load problem because demand varies. If a producer maintains enough capacity to serve all the consumers who want to use that service at the one busiest time, then all the rest of the time, people, cars, rooms, airplanes would be standing around idle, which is expensive. So although it seems odd, you, the consumer, actually want producers to limit their capacity because that allows them to charge you much less overall. But sometimes, specifically at times of peak demand, that means that the firm will need some other way of rationing the service. Uber, hotels, airlines, and electric companies do it by charging higher prices at times of peak demand. In the case of Uber, that actually means you can get more cars on the road because the surge in price attracts more drivers at times of peak demand. But what about Starbucks? That was the question that was asked in the letter. What about Starbucks? One of the things I'm going to say over and over here again that the answer is transaction cost is this. To the consumer, all costs are transaction costs. To the consumer, all costs are transaction costs. Let's look at middlemen for a minute. Now, a middleman buys cheap, sells dear, and does nothing to if the product. And middlemen are everywhere and probably have been since the very first exchanges started to improve the lives of primitive humans. Marco Polo and his family were middlemen. So is eBay. So is Amazon. Between them, in time and complexity, lie millions of highly specialized, highly profitable actions and transactions. But are middlemen actually good for market systems? Or are they just parasites? Well, the answer depends on what you think is the counterfactual. Let's go back to our widget, my stock example. Remember, the seller A has a widget and is storing it. A will take any offer more than a dollar. B wants a widget, and all widgets are the same. And B will pay any price less than $5. Now, a middleman buys from A, even though the middleman doesn't like or want widgets herself. The middleman pays $2.50. So A makes $1.50. Remember, A would have sold for a dollar, and the middleman pays $2.50. So A makes $1.50. Then the middleman sells the widget to B for $3.50. So B makes $1.50. Remember, B would have paid up to $5, and B is able to obtain the widget for just $3.50. Since the middleman buys for $2.50 and sells for $3.50, the middleman makes a dollar on the transaction. In effect, flipping the widget, just buying it for the purpose of reselling it. That's what makes people upset. The middleman is just buying the widget for the purpose of reselling it. Should this be illegal? Is it harmful? Parasitic? Well, it depends what you think would have happened. If A and B have found each other anyway at a cost of less than $1, then maybe you should object. If they would not have found each other, then everyone is actually better off by quite a bit. This example of the counterfactual is important to an essay that Frederick Bastiat wrote called The Negative Railroad, which is one of the best examples of why the answer is transactions cost of anything that's ever been written. Bastiat's argument was that the system must be concerned only with consumer and their welfare. Otherwise, it's impossible to avoid running counter to the general interest. 
since the producer is constantly going to demand the multiplication of obstacles, wants, and efforts. To put it another way, everything that would properly be labeled a cost becomes a benefit if we take the producers. So consider Bastiat's example. He claimed to have seen a letter in a Bordeaux newspaper. Here's what Bastiat said. M. Simeo raises the following question. Should there be a break in the tracks at Bordeaux on the railroad from Paris to Spain? He answers the question in the affirmative and offers a number of reasons, of which I propose to examine only this. Should there be a break in the railroad from Paris to Bayonne at Bordeaux? For if goods and passengers are forced to stop at that city, this will be profitable for boatmen, port porters, owners of hotels, and so on. But why stop there? If you really want to create jobs, then, Bastiat says, Poitiers, Tours, Orleans, in fact, all the intermediate points including Ruffec, Châtelroy, and so on and so on, ought also to demand breaks in the tracks on the ground of the general interest, that is, the interest of domestic producers, for the more there are of these breaks in the line, the greater will be the amount paid for storage, porters, and cartage at every point along the way. By this means, we will end up having a railroad composed entirely of a whole series of breaks in the track. In effect, a negative railroad. End of quotation. So that is, public policy should maximize the number of middlemen because it creates more jobs. Well, of course, he's making fun of that idea. That's exactly the wrong way to think about this. We don't want to maximize jobs. Well, then what's the difference? I was just saying we don't want to maximize jobs. Shouldn't we get rid of middlemen? Well, in the widget example, the counterfactual is that the transaction would not otherwise have taken place. The transaction cost of information and transportation are too high. A, the owner of the widget would not have found B, the buyer of the widget, without a middleman to act as broker to facilitate the transaction. In fact, the middleman enables the transaction, which would not otherwise have taken place. In the case of the railroad, though, the train is rolling along, and the counterfactual is that the transaction, meaning the train rolling, would have taken place. Government policy is to interpose an artificial middleman increasing the friction and expense of the transfer in this case for no reason other than to create jobs. And so there's your answer. If middlemen are naturally able to find profitable work by matching up buyers and sellers without artificial public restrictions, then it should be allowed. But the government should not go out of its way to create new middleman jobs by unloading the train and then loading a different train at every point along the tracks. Well, I want to talk now about an example of middlemen in action that's quite dear to my heart because it's in my own good name. The name Munger, M-U-N-G-E-R, comes from Monger, M-O-N-G-E-R, a dealer or trader, often embarrassingly, in illicit or smuggled goods. The name has very old roots. In the Saxon writings of the 11th century, we find it as Mankgeer, M-A-N-C-G-E-R-E. So according to the Etymology Dictionary, the Latin noun was Mangonus, a trader or merchant, often shady and deceitful. And Mangonus, in turn, has its roots in the Greek word Manganon, a war machine or contrivance for deceiving an enemy. The Trojan horse, for example, was a Manganon. Given that origin, it's not surprising that traders were seen as deceivers, thieves, parasites, something that brings the Trojan horse into economic transactions. And so there's little to place on the positive side of the etymological ledger, at least until about 1000 AD. Because by that time, the river of meaning had formed. There were war machines, such as the medieval manganel or catapult, and traders in the market, the mankgeer. So 
Uh, Sharon Turner, the historian, has a remarkable three-volume history of the Anglo-Saxons, which she published in 1836, and she quotes an 11th century source, a uh, Psalter. Here's the quote. In the Saxon dialogues, the merchant, or mankir, is introduced, and the mankir says, I say that I am useful to the king, and to aldermen, and to the rich, and to all people. I ascend my ship with my merchandise, and I sail over the sea-like places. And I sell my things, and I buy dear things that are not produced in this land. I bring them to you here with great danger over the sea. Sometimes I suffer shipwreck with the loss of all my things, scarcely escaping myself. And the interlocutor asks, what things do you bring to us? And the Mankir replies, skins, silks, costly gems and gold, various garments, pigment, wine, oil, ivory, brass, copper, tin, silver, glass, and such like. And the interlocutor asks, will you sell your things here as you brought them? And the Mankir says, I will not, because what would my labor benefit me? I will sell them dearer here than I bought them there, that I may get some profit to feed me, my wife and children. Yeah, right, a cynic might say. It's always about the wife and children people, isn't it? In fact, you're just stealing money by buying low and selling high. Well, the Mankir is taking risks. He mentions going over the sea-like places. Sometimes I suffer shipwreck. It seems like Monty Python, though, um, where the guy at the witch burning says, she turned me into a newt. Well, I, I got better. So clearly, if this guy's had shipwreck, he hasn't died. Uh, but he scarcely escaped, and he, he made it. He, he suffered to a, a lot of risk. That's the story. This is quite a drama. There's risk, greed, profit. But the Mankir of 1050 AD was not a parasite, certainly not in his own eyes, and in retrospect, not in our eyes either. In fact, he claims he's useful. Is that right? The Mankir freely admits he does nothing to change or improve the product. All he does is transport it and deliver it to people who want it. The question is, what do you think is the counterfactual? What would have happened otherwise? And the answer is very likely they would not otherwise have been able to obtain that product at any price. Seems like we'd be better off without him. Seems like the trader is simply preying on people's needs for goods and providing nothing of real value himself. Let's look at another example of middlemen in action. And this one comes from Frederick Bastiat. So Frederick Bastiat wrote in his... Uh, famous essay, What is Seen and What is Not Seen, uh, section, section six, on middlemen. And we might think of this as the example of the stomach that is hungry. So what Bastiat says is, while the exaggerated development of public service, the waste of energies that it entails, tends to create a disastrous parasitism in society, it's rather strange that many modern schools of economic thought attributing this characteristic to voluntary private services seek to transform the functions performed by the various occupations. So what he's saying there is just what I said before about the, the counterfactual. So the development of public services, the proliferation of public servants is a way of imposing restrictions and friction on the system. But it's different when we're talking about voluntary private services that arise to transform the functions performed by the various occupations. So the question is, what would happen if we didn't have the imposition of public policy and law? And then he says, these schools of thought are vehement in their attack on those they call middlemen. They would willingly eliminate the capitalist, the banker, the speculator, the entrepreneur, the businessman, and the merchant, accusing them of interposing themselves between producer and consumer in order to fleece them both, without giving them anything of value. Or, rather, the reformers would like to transfer to the state the work of the middleman, for in fact, this work cannot be eliminated. And then, regarding the famine of 1847 in France, Bastiat says, 
Why, people say, leave to the merchants the task of getting foodstuffs from the United States and the Crimea? Why cannot the state, the departments, and municipalities organize a provisioning service and set up warehouses for stockpiling? They would sell only at their cost. And the people, the poor people, would be relieved of the tribute they pay in profits to free, selfish, individual, anarchical middlemen. When the stomach that is hungry is in Paris and the wheat that can satisfy it is in Odessa, the suffering will not cease until the wheat reaches the stomach. There are three ways of accomplishing this. The hungry men can go themselves to find the wheat. They can put their trust in those who engage in this kind of business or they can levy an assessment on themselves and charge public officials with the task. So this is a terrific metonymy in the sense that the stomach, a part, is used to stand in for the whole, all of the hungry people of Paris. So what Bastiat is saying is we've got the stomach in Paris. The wheat that would satisfy it is in Odessa. There's three ways to solve this problem. First, every consumer could go off on his own with a cart. It's actually really far to Odessa. By the time you got to Odessa, you'd die, and you wouldn't make it all the way back to Paris before you go back and fill up your cart again. So that's ridiculous. Inefficient and too slow to answer the needs of the hungry. Second, middlemen can buy, transport, and resell the product. Or third, the state can buy, transport, and resell the products or give the products away for free. So it's really the second and third of these that are the potentially viable alternative. Bastiat notes that many claim that the state should always perform the function of middlemen more efficiently because the officers of the state are motivated by the public good. They don't charge any profits. But that's disastrously wrong. First, the agents of the state are not, in fact, motivated by the public. They're no better than anyone else. They're no worse than anyone else. They're no better than anyone else. And they act primarily to benefit themselves. Second, without the signals of price and profit provided by middlemen, no one knows what product should be shipped where or when. In short, without middlemen, the state would act more slowly, less accurate, and at the wrong times. It would actually be more expensive because middlemen are trying to find ways to reduce not just the cost, but the transactions cost of delivering the food. They're, in order to get the wheat to Paris, remember, for consumers, all costs are transaction costs. For consumers, all costs are transaction costs. So if I can find a way to reduce the price, and since demand curves for wheat slope downward, I can sell more. If I can provide better wheat, if I can provide it faster in a way that's more convenient, I will also sell more wheat. So now we can answer the question about whether Starbucks uses surge pricing. Yes, the price of anything is always the sum of the monetary cost and the inconvenience. So at Starbucks, if you go by the Atlanta airport, on in uh, 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning, and you decide, I'm going to get me some Starbucks. I'm willing to pay $6 for that latte. You go around the corner, you see the Starbucks, and the line is 20 or 25 minutes long. What is the cost of me buying that latte at Starbucks? Well, it's the $6 monetary cost plus the 25-minute cost of waiting in line. What Uber has done is to have monetized the cost of waiting in line because they actually raise the price during surges, meaning that some people say, well, I'll go later or I'll walk, and a lot more cars come online. Starbucks doesn't have that as a solution. Now, what Starbucks could do is change their price dynamically. 10 o'clock, say between 7 a.m. and 11 a.m., the price of coffee could be doubled or tripled, and that way the line wouldn't be so long. But notice that having a line actually results in 
the dynamic updating of price in a way that's very close to the algorithm that is used by Uber. Except the Starbucks algorithm for surge pricing is just done by emergent market processes called lining up. So it may be that I say, no, it is too expensive for me to buy Starbucks now, even though that latte costs the same $6 that it always cost. Because the 25 minutes of waiting in line is too long, I decide I will wait until the price is lower. What Bastiat is pointing out is that middlemen will find ways of reducing the transactions cost on a variety of margins by providing transportation, convenience. They will reduce the total cost, which is going to be the sum of the monetary price and the costs of inconvenience. That's one of the things that middlemen will work to do and that they're going to compete to do it. So my point seems paradoxical. It's because of profit that middlemen create value. And the seeking of profit by middlemen, buying cheap and selling dear, ensures that, as Bastiat put it, the wheat will reach the stomach faster, more cheaply, more reliable than any service the state could possibly create. The system of middlemen performs what seems like, to Bastiat and to me, a miracle. Directed by the comparison of prices, it distributes food over the whole surface of the country, beginning always at the highest price, that is, where the demand is greatest. It is impossible to imagine an organization more completely calculated the needs of those who are in want. So that's Bastiat. Those are Bastiat's words to describe the reason why middlemen who we don't direct or design still result in a system that reduces the transactions cost of us having access to the things that we Bastiat says it is impossible to imagine an organization more completely calculated to meet the needs of those who are in want. And remember, it's not calculated. This is an uncalculated system that performs better than any system we might be able to calculate. Oh, that sound means it's time for this week's twedge. Well, this is a middleman joke about transactions cost from David Friedman in his book, Hidden Order. I've changed the way the joke works a little bit uh, to make it more French, given that uh, France is our theme this week. The joke goes like this. Englishman, John, stole a large amount of gold from Napoleon's treasury, and he tried to escape revolutionary France. French troops catch up with him near the coast in Britannia, but John does not have the gold. Now, John speaks no French, and the French soldiers speak no English, but they find a local Breton who speaks French and English, who can translate. And they ask, where did you hide the money? And the translator says, the soldiers want to know where you hid the money. And John says, tell those frogs I will never say, never. And the translator says, John says he'll never tell you. And the soldiers all cock their muskets and they point at John's face. Tell him that if he does not tell us where he hid the money, we will shoot him in the eyes and kill him. The translator says, the soldiers say if you don't tell them, they'll shoot you in the eyes. John sees that they're serious. He begins to shake with fear. John says, tell the soldiers that I hid the gold in the well on the left, just after that last village. The Breton turns to the soldiers and says, John says that your mothers are all so fat that their blood type is ragu. Well, so the point of the joke is that middlemen can provide a service, but we would need competition among middlemen to have any reliance, any ability to trust. When we talk about the kinds of transactions cost, remember it's triangulation, transfer, and trust. We would have to have some kind of trust 
in the middleman. And that's a big problem with it. It's a problem we'll come back to again and again. Uh, this, like most of our twedges, is not actually funny, but it does tell us something important about the transaction cost of trust. Well, we got a letter this week, and the letter asks a terrific question. Are roads public goods? And what does that have to do with transaction costs? Are roads public goods? And what does that have to do with transactions costs? Well, thanks for listening. Hope that you'll send email with questions or comments to our email address, which is taitc.email at gmail.com. And thanks for listening. This is Tidy C.